so here we are. This is part two of episode zero. Um, if you've listened to part one, you kind of know what to expect. This is the very, 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 very first thing we ever recorded to see if it all worked. We were we weren't sure. We just thought we'd talk about a load of games and see if we could get the formula right and the the you know the repartee and everything and see how it went. Um, this is the second part, so this is where we cover games uh, for 1984. We're going to look at loads of games. I listed them last time. If you've listened to part one, you've heard them. If not, we've got tons of games coming up: Black Oak, Boulder Dash, Decathlons, Ghostbusters, all kinds of stuff hopefully you enjoy it uh so stay with us um and listen to us talk about the games from 1984 right hello we are back um we are back with we're back with 1984 games so we've done 1982 and 83 we've done the first year and a half or so of the commodore 64 uh we're going to look at some of the notable games from 1984 um so we're going to look at some that meant something to us that were quite big at the time. That so, and, and a lot of these really showed an evolution of the machine. So just as a quick mention, these probably in alphabetical order, just how we've listed them off. Um, so not in release order or anything like that. But the first one, um, it's a strange old game. Um, we're not going to mention too much about it, but there was a there was a there was a, a version a game made of Alien. Yeah. So Alien was a huge movie when it came out. Um, weirdly, this is way later because it came out in 1979, right? So, this is way later into its. I think I'm not even sure if Aliens hadn't been either out or was imminent at this point. Um, maybe a couple of years earlier, but either way, um, this is a game based on the film Alien, and I think as much as I could get out of it, this was a name on the box, and it was designed to get people to buy it because the actual game was awful. I couldn't, I couldn't make it make sense in any way it was to kind of i don't know i just i was when i switched started the game i was confronted with kind of a map of the nostromo and a and what looked like an inventory and i had to sort of choose things from the inventory and i and i, and I kind of lost me at that point mm-hmm. yeah I, I, what it wasn't was a tense game of being stalked by a killer species of alien from another world yeah it definitely wasn't anything like that yeah it, it didn't really capture the film and it's very green i seem to remember uh, is it green it's all green. green it's all very green isn't it yeah, yeah, they really it like felt that. it felt like it might have been a, a spectrum or a, a conversion from another machine that with which had less colourful graphics because <laughs> it is just green and white. Yeah, it's or not yellow. great. Yeah, that's yeah. alien. Yeah. Um, so this one, um, a little bit more on sort of thing, but probably I'll, I'll talk about this one. The next one is Black Hawk. And I really like Black Hawk, and I still like Black Hawk to this day. This is yep. the uh, we were talking earlier on about Blue Max. This is Blue Max, but done properly from yep. the top. You know, there's a reason why vertical scrolling shoot ups work, and not horizontal isometric shoot 'em ups. Correct. And, and and Black Hawk is a really good example of that. It's, it's it's got a really really cool mechanic. For anyone that hasn't played Black Hawk, it exists on two screens. So you have your top screen where you have like a sort of radar uh, icon thing. So it's a top down scroll. It's a you know it's a vertical scrolling game goes down from the top um and you play the titular black hawk which is uh you know some kind of jet fighter um and you coming down from the top of the screen are helicopters and some some missiles and all kinds of stuff uh coming down to try and kill you you've got to shoot tanks and all that kind of stuff but they don't appear first of all on the screen where your plane is there's a secondary screen which is the top where your radar is and you can fire bombs at your radar so you kind of got a preemptive almost missile command like um, and if your bomb hits just as a point where they're about to go through, you destroy them, sort of thing. And if you kill them before they get down to the bot off that bot off that screen, 
they never get near your shit. You, you never get near your plane. Obviously, that never, you know, that does happen. And then the, the game flicks back to your main thing. And then it becomes like a more standard vertical scroll and shoot 'em up where you're firing things coming down towards you with, you know, twin lasers or twin twin guns sort of thing. Um, and it's great. You go over a series of islands um, and it's, it's, it's endless. It just goes on and on and on and on. Um, each island is punctuated by what I thought at the time was, you know, a great version of Ride, I think it's Ride of the Valkyries, mm-hmm. um, if I remember rightly. Um, and it's just really, really enjoyable. It has a special place in my heart. It was the first game I played on my 14-inch color portable that I got for Christmas in 1984. Um, so it really does um, ring a, you know, it, it has a lot of memory for me sort of thing. But playing it again, um, it still stands up. It's a good shoot 'em up um, it's not as busy as some of your bullet hell shooters from Japan sort of thing, but it was never meant to be. And it's, it's a bit more, you know, it has a, that nice layer of strategy in that second screen, which is a mechanic I've really not seen done in much else. No. I don't know if you, I don't know if you have. No, it was quite unique, Black Hawk. It was unique because it had a great musical score, which really drove the pace of the game. It was fast. It was a fast game to play, and that two-screen mm. kind of action really kept you on your toes because... Um, play, you had to play the game slightly differently in each section. It was a genuinely innovative and, and good game, and I think one of the first games I played on turbo tape, so um, <laughs> way back when, so it's, it loaded super quick, which meant that you could get straight into it. And I really enjoyed playing Black Hawk, and revisiting it was a, a quite a refreshing uh, experience, I have to say. Mm, yeah, it's good. It's still good. Uh, it's, yep, it, it is. It's, it's fun. Um, and I, you know, I think I'd like to see that mechanic made made use of again i think it's quite interesting yeah i agree um, mm. all right cool black hawk yeah recommend it go play that it's recommend good. play boulder dash i like boulder dash i everyone think boulder dash is a very accomplished game everyone likes boulder dash yeah and i think <laughs> you know there's some interesting fact boulder dash from a game making point of view is really slick mm. um you know there's no there's no sprites on that game it's all characters and and for those that won't know what that means it just means that it's programmed in a particularly clever way which meant that it was it was really quick to load and there's a lot to it there's let the levels are massive there's hundreds of them it's it's clever mm. well i think just to sort of think i think there's only 16 and 20 bonus ones and so and four bonus ones in the original. I, I think it was, like there was more. No, because there's Boulder Dash 2 and then I think Boulder Dash Construction Kit, uh, um, right, okay. which I think does lead to about, I think there's 16 in the original game. Right. And, and four, so uh, every fourth level you get a bonus one where there's loads of diamonds to collect. Yeah, market. yeah. Um, but essentially Boulder Dash is, you play a little guy called Rockford. Um, he would become a mascot in Zap. Um, and he, he used to, you basically underground trying to collect um diamonds enough diamonds to escape from these sort of mazes these underground mazes you're sort of burrowing through you're like a little termite or something i don't know what what was rockford he was he a, i'm not sure some, an ant is he, a, think, is he yeah. an ant a termite or something um, like so you, you're burrowing through the dirt trying to find these little gems um and there's boulders all around um now the, the great thing was was the physics although yeah. they were programming it sort of thing was that a, a boulder on top of a boulder if there was a space either side would drop down so you had to be careful not to create lanes where the boulders would fall on top of you and crush you same with diamonds. As you progress, there were these things called fireflies, which would, you had to drop boulders on to create diamonds. Uh, there was the slime, yeah. um, which you had to trap into having no space to move, and then yeah. that would create diamonds. So you had to give it enough space to become... So you had a target number of diamonds on each level to collect. Yeah. Um, you had a countdown timer, and the quicker you did the levels, the more points you got. 
it's great. It's, yeah. it's and it sta- absolutely one hundred percent stands up to this day. Yes, I agree. Um, it's fast count- though. Ca- yeah, it spawned countless sequels, and it's. I yeah. think it's probably still being remade. Um, yeah. I mean, in fact, I made a version of it on Unity the other year, um, <laughs> sort of thing. Just, just as an, just as a, an exercise and seeing how how hard it was, and it's actually very, very tricky to get that feel of its, its speed and you know quickness, and it's good. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Balderdash, great, great game. Yeah, and you know, it's it has simple graphics, but you know. In a different world, the kind of the way you gnaw through the kind of earth and everything, it's not, it, it reminded me in some ways of Minecraft and that kind of way you're sort of chewing through the mm. earth and picking things up. And it, it, it had its own sort of unique space. And But it is a game you, as soon as you're in, you don't, it doesn't take long to get into it, figure out what you're going to do when you, and you're away. And that's the kind of a secret to games like that. You don't need a lot of, a lot of the games that were in 82, 83 that we looked at had a lot of ex, expository text and stuff to go with it. This is just like, there's the game, go. When it, yeah. I think it benefited from that. Absolutely, and I think you can see its antecedents in games like Mr. Driller. Yeah, um, and I think it, you know, it came from something like Dig Dug. I think yeah. Dig Dug was a big influence on it, but it sort Without of took that Dig Dug, you know, ethos of drilling, digging around under the earth, yeah. sort of thing, and made it much bigger of it. And Mr. Driller, especially, draws from it. I think there's yeah. there's a lot to be said for Boulder Dash. It's, it's very good. Yes, it's an excellent yeah. game. What's next? Uh, okay, so this is a, <laughs> a head-to-head, uh, a head-to-head of two sports giants: um, Daily Thompson's Decathlon versus Activision's Decathlon, um, or as I like to call them, Joystick Wrecker One and Joystick Wrecker <laughs> Two, um, because I think these two games probably accounted for more wrecked joysticks back in the eighties than any other games put together. I would agree. Um, there was much joystick waggling going on in the mid eighties. Um, uh, and, and obviously, pardon the pun, um, around these games. Uh, yeah. You basically had to fling left and right as fast as you could the joystick, press the button for whatever event you're on. Um, and yes, yeah. Quick Shot 2s, I, th- I, I went through about three or four. Yeah. Quick Shot 2s were not built for this. No, they, they really were. They really were. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the fact that they were just weak. Yeah. <laughs> you, you really needed the, the best. the best joystick for this was the Atari one. Yeah, the, um, either, the, either the bog standard Atari one or possibly a arcade or competition pro. Yeah, the, one of those two. Something with the yeah the, the click stick, whatever micro, they call the, the micro switch my, my controller. Because yeah. the the quick shot who didn't have that, so inevitably no. that was doomed. Yeah, it was, and they, they just broke. Um, yeah. So if we had a head-to-head sort of thing, um, for my challenge, I played through both of them in researching this, um, and, and it came down to the one I always heard, which was Activision's Decathlon, because it was actually a proper decathlon. Yeah. Um, and also as well, it, it had some interesting mechanics. Um, in It made you run a full 1,500 meters. It did. It made you run a full, that took three and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you're three and a half minutes of slowly waggling from side to side and when you got to 1300 meters it turned into a sprint so you've been <laughs> slowly waggling side to side for what was essentially about three just over three minutes your arm was knackered you were tired you were like you were running out of juice sort of thing and then it went yeah now sprint and to sprint <laughs> you had to properly waggle so i'm talking like you know some some full-on some full-on fist pumping um, and and, and it, it, you'd be dead by the end of it. This gave you a proper workout. Um, it did. Daily Thompson's Decathlon, on the other hand, and, and also as well, the thing about Decathlon was a, a very very nice uh, animation on that main on the, yeah. that main sprite. A really nice, uh, some really nice animation on that. Daily Thompson's Decathlon won out for sound. Uh, yeah. That opening that opening theme tune was a was a barnstormer. 
Yeah. Um, I think needs to be said. Uh, but the actual game, yeah. No. Bit rubbish. Bit 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 rubbish. Bit really, small. not very. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, just not well, very good. Yeah, it's it just it suffered from too much show and tell at the beginning, and not enough game substance. And, the, and yeah. the, fully, the irony of Decathlon is that the of the Activision Decathlon was that um, when you there was no celebration or anything really in that game. You know, it was just you just did events and got the scores, and that was it. And you yeah. never you never really got the sense of like the revel revelry that you got. Whereas in Daily Thompson's, it was kind of the opposite. The game itself was kind of perfunctory to the kind of crowd and everything else. And, and I think it came at a cost. And the decathlon, there were very different experiences on uh, Daily Thompson's. There was a very different experience on the Sinclair Spectrum. It was actually a better game on there. So this was actually quite a poor conversion of that. But yeah, decathlon, so. Activision one was great, especially multiplayer. You had a few people around. That was a great game to play. Yeah, it was. And I think the thing with Daily Thompson's decathlon, because I think it did come out after it, I think was trying to ape track and field too much. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and Decathlon. I know the other thing I found out about Decathlon, which I never was aware of, sort of thing, was done, uh, made by David Crane. Of course, yeah. They went I on did, to I amazing know, things. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, he created pit, uh, Pitfall and things, didn't he? David yeah. Crane was a, was a legend in early yeah. computer game design. Um, but I never realised he did Decathlon as well. So there you go. What next? Actually, let's let's do let's keep uh, let's do uh, David Crane double bill because uh, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is a very clever game, mm. um, and it's easy to think of Ghostbusters as just a game about. Obviously, it's a very big movie at that in nineteen eighty four. Mm-hmm. It was a it was huge, and so it's easy. It would it would have been easy to just make this game a kind of crappy catch the ghost kind of franchise game. People would have bought it just because it had the word Ghostbusters and that logo on it, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a lot more to this, and I actually forgot about all the other aspects until I replayed it. So, not just the fact that you get that kind of um, obviously, it's got that amazing classic speech, Ghostbusters, ha ha ha, beginning, which is all very good, yeah. And I saw the show and tell, and it had even had a little bouncy ball thing to so you could sing along to Ghostbusters theme and a reasonably good version of the Ghostbusters theme. So, even if you before you even get in the game, you're kind of getting into the spirit of the whole thing. But when you actually start the game off, it was more than just catching ghosts. You actually have to earn money as a Ghostbuster to buy mm. upgrades for your vehicle so that you can capture more ghosts and eventually take on Zool and the, the giant marshmallow man. And that's actually, and I mean, I was actually impressed by how that worked because you've got a big map of the city. You have to drive around in the city and pick up ghosts and you can hoover them as you find them. It was actually a lot cl- more clever than I gave it credit for because you can gradually upgrade your vehicle and it's a clever game. Yeah, <laughs> it was really good. Absolutely, this could have been a cheap knockoff platformer, um, like a lot of um, sort of you know movie and TV and thing conversions were back then, or weird whatever sort of thing. But there's a lot of thought in this game, and I think it comes yeah. from the fact that it's David Gray, um, yeah. and I think who was you know a, you know he's clearly a very 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 accomplished early game designer. Um, and knew, uh, clearly knew his stuff and probably just would not be happy. Um, this is not another ET. This is something else where, nope. sort of thing where a bit of time has been taken. And I imagine what's happened here is they probably looked at ET and gone, you know what, we don't want that. Because um, yep. it's happening around the same time. So they've probably given him more time to come up with something to incorporate all the elements of the film. You know, um, yep. I, I like the idea that the, the longer you drive around the city, the longer you're in the driving mode to collect more ghosts and get more money. But yeah. then again, you run more risk of more ghosts appearing in the buildings and stuff. So there's a nice, yeah. nice level of risk reward there. There's lots going on, um, and and you know all the elements of the film are present and correct. 
and and in, a, in yeah. and all in 64k it's, it's yeah it's yeah. really good i mean that's what that's what impressed me the most with it actually is there's a there's a lot of game in this for the commodore 64 and the graphics are really good i mean those that giant car that you drive on the road is really good mm-hmm. Um, you know, they the look like Ghostbusters when you pull up outside the vi- the, some of the um, townhouses and you have to trap the ghost and capture. It's a, it's clever the way that it works. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's all yeah, it's all recognisable. You know, it yeah. looks it looks like a, that, that looks like Ecto One. It looks like Ghostbusters. The suits are right. Everything you know, the Marshmallow Man bouncing side to side. Is, this is this is fine. This is good. You know, yeah. and you know, uh, I think is is remembered. I think, as you said, sort of thing, a lot more for the music and the speech and everything like that. But the game behind it, I think, des- deserves mm. a bit more, you know, maybe more recognition than it sometimes might get. Yeah. Absolutely. Good stuff. Okay. Ghostbusters. Yeah. Well done. Well done, David Crane. You were good. David Crane is a name that you should always respect. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Quickly now, I'll just we'll just briefly touch on this one sort of thing, which is the complete opposite of what it actually took to play this back in the day if you ever loaded this off tape. Um, and this is Football Manager. So the original Kevin Tom's Football Manager. For anyone that used to play this on tape will know that it used to load in basic with no kind of loading trickery. So it would take about 20 minutes and wouldn't always load, <laughs> which was 20 minutes of your life you're not getting back. <laughs> um, and obviously it's 1984, so you haven't even got Zap to read. Um, so you, this is just boring, boring to read. So when it did load sort of thing, it was very slow. Um, it was very chugged along. It had... You know, it was football man. It was a, it was a, it was a decent football manager thing. I mean, it must have been it must have had something if you were prepared to risk that twenty minute uh, nail biter to get it to load. Um, and it did. It was you know it was one of the early sort of examples of managing a football team. So, you know, going back to it now, obviously without that loading, and you can just dive straight into it. It's all right, but you know it's a bit rough and ready, and it, it's nothing particularly special. Um, but you know, I think for a, a nation attempt at football football managing games i think it, it does quite well well absolutely i mean i i never really played i never really enjoyed football as such and i certainly didn't go for any of the the football manager games that said um it's kind of unique i mean it might be in basic and everything else and that's totally you know just of its time but you know there was not a lot of resource football management games that did the things that that did at that time hmm. and also it's probably worth contextually thinking that at that time of course you either went to football matches or you saw the saw some football matches that TV might show or you watched World of Sport. Otherwise, there was no real... There was match of the day. But that was it for football on TV. Yeah, that football focus. So, you know, so... And I saw it, it was... It was for some, for some people, it was a little window of extra football that you wouldn't ever always have got. That's true, actually, yeah. Yeah, so I suppose, yeah, putting it into that context of, you know, because football's just everywhere these days. <laughs> so much of it. So, you know, you, oh, football. Uh, and as a football fan, even I go, oh, God, football. Um, but yeah, back then, you had your football focus, sort of 50 minutes on a Saturday afternoon, bit of match of the day. And if you were lucky, I said some world sport, if you were lucky, some some midweek action on a Wednesday night. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's all right. You know, it's football manager, isn't it? Some people probably like it more than, yeah. we, more well, than it, we do. It had a, it, you know, the one thing I would always say about football manager, because they still exist to this day, right? Mm-hmm. The one thing I'll say about football manager is that the guy who made that knew exactly the audience he was making it for. Mm. You know, it doesn't pretend to be anything other than what it is. Hence the name. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, out of all the games that are out at that time with all the names and we've, you know, we've explored some of the other names in, 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 in the early part of this podcast this is the one that is literally does it is doing what it says on the tin right football manager 
the game where you manage your football team. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what it is. I think that's refreshing, and it's certainly. I mean, it's not my cup of tea, but you know, one has to admire someone, especially if they program that in basic. That is like torture. So. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I can't say much more about okay. it. It's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's all right. It's, it's, it is what it, it is. is. What it is. I can't get excited about football managers. I just can't these days. It's like it's, you know. I went back to it and I went, yeah, it's pretty much yeah. what I remember. Next up uh, is the most perfectly animated man on the Commodore 64. Um, yeah. Impossible Mission. So well animated. They used him for several <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> including the, he's all, including yeah. a, including sports games. Yeah, he's, but he's, we'll come to that he's later. everywhere, this man. Um, that sprite got around. I mean, I, I think the, um, Impossible Mission, I think, to this day, is one of the greatest early examples of a quality dis- game design. It's exceptional. It's truly exceptional that game. It is obviously crazy hard, in and and you know, and it's no, it's no, it's no, no easy game. That is a challenge, and it really is an impossible mission. However, there's so much going on in that game, and so many little mechanics thrown in. It's astonishing. It's, I mean, even when I played it earlier, I was straight back into that game. There's no, it's just marvelous. I think it's a marvelous game of that time. Okay, truly great animation. Um, you know, it's it's a bit of a mixture of platformer, puzzle game, kind of music game, music um, follow the leader type Simon kind of thing. Uh, it's just it's it's such an odd game, and and you know, and, and yeah, it is it is great. Some of the levels and platforms are sparse and hard, and but I don't know, it ha- it just has a really curious appeal. That game, yeah. I mean, I can I can get behind most. Of it. I, I I found it way too hard. It's, it's just it's, it it's, far, it's far too hard, and, and I think that I, I I think when I played it um, back when I had it, you know, back in the mid nineteen eighties, I had no idea what was going on. I just didn't have a clue. There were puzzle pieces. Yeah. I was running around, so I started off in an elevator. I ran into a room. There were robots. Some would zap me. Some wouldn't. Some would move fast. Some would move slow. There were bits of furniture I would stand up against and kind of rub myself against until until, until <laughs> a puzzle piece popped out, um, and then I would get this puzzle piece and then. Go into back into the elevator and find some more. Uh, go into the room, find more puzzle pieces. Then go into a strange game where I'd had to rotate the puzzle pieces with no real clue of what I was. It, this was like you know the, the baked bean puzzle of its day. Um, in the, in the <laughs> fact that I had no idea. I, like here's four. Absolutely here's, here's sixteen puzzle pieces that make four different puzzles. Yeah. But we're not going to tell you which four of each, you know which four fit in each puzzle. You have to work that out. And we're not going to yeah. tell you which corner they go in uh, or which rotation they go in. Yeah. And it's like, ugh, I have no idea what the hell I'm supposed to be doing here. Um, and, 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 and I think it, that it, it, it's, I can get it. I get, I get that it's revered and I get that it's, you know, it is, you know, from it's doing a lot and there's a lot of game there and I get that sort of thing, but I think it was just so, so impenetrable and so player unfriendly. Um, and I didn't like what I also didn't like was um, I love the animation. The animation is amazing. Yeah. Sort of Great run sort of thing. But, oh, God, I wish you didn't have to somersault every time you jumped. I'd want, I so <laughs> wanted a quicker jump. <laughs> the, the jump is like, someone says, oh, do you reckon you could animate a, a, a somersault? That's amazing. Yeah, but, you know, as you know, Jurassic Park taught us, this is not what, stop and think. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, if Mario taught us anything, quick jump, just let us jump. 
don't make me go through yes. a, a forward bloody roll when the, the the distance I need to cover is <laughs> is, 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 a, is a step. Yeah, um, I mean, in all fairness, you're right. His his athletic dexterity <laughs> knows no bounds in terms of how many somersaults that guy can do in any given period of time. But he never really learned that he could just do like slight jumps, yeah, a hop, a hop, a hop. <laughs> or walk. Uh, he doesn't walk, does he? he? Just runs and leaps wherever he yeah. goes. That guy. Uh, and and I think this that just put me off because I did. I never felt like I could. Um, I never felt like I was improperly in control. So, you yeah. know, I'd, playing, you know, other, other simpler platformers. So even something like, you know, Hunchback, um, which yeah. clearly is not as good a game, and I get that sort of thing, but the fact that I could actually move left and right and his, his jump was pretty quick um, yeah. was was refreshing. When you went to this, it was like, you, you know, you had to plan well in advance. And some might say, well, that was the point. Um, you know, you had to plan sort of thing about three days before that you needed to do a, do a somersault. <laughs> And, and, and yeah, I, I get it. I get the plaudits around it. I understand a lot, but it, it, it did nothing. It just left it left me feeling cold most of the time because I just I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't connect with it. And I found as well that it, um, I found it really sterile in its in its yes. atmosphere, and that just didn't. It was, there was nothing warm about that game. There was nothing inviting. Um, no, and and in fact, funnily enough, for me, that's kind of the mystery of the appeal. I mean. Firstly, I suppose, to paraphrase uh, Anthony Hopkins, you know, this isn't difficult mission. This is impossible mission, right? Yeah. So the challenge is, but it is, you know, it's no fun to make a game that's impossible. And and I agree with you in part that it does feel like parts of this are so mysterious that you actually wonder what the hell you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the puzzle that you gradually collect the pieces of by searching furniture and things... That does become an impenetrable puzzle, and I think I think it's more people solve that by accident than they ever have on purpose. And likewise, I mean, the actual challenge of getting through every screen, and of which there must be quite a number, and every lift, because I think there's at least five or six lift shafts, and there's rooms that come off each lift mm. shaft, and there's challenges in each of those rooms, depending on, the, like you said, the kind of robots, whether they shoot you on sight or whether they freeze or whatever. And I think each each playthrough as well was different, wasn't it, as well? Was it randomly generated? Yes. So every time you played it, the rooms were in a different order, they're different rooms slightly. So so it's, so it's it, it, you can't even sort of plan and really map that game because it's different every time. And, and I think that that's part of its charm. I mean, obviously, the atmospherics of the game are very, very clever. You know, the sound effects are good. It has speech in there. When you die and fall in a pit, you get a horrific blood-curdling scream. Um, oh, you know, God, you get yeah, the destroy scream. him, my robots, and you get all of the kind of. There's a there's a lot to like in its atmospherics and its and its mystery. I quite like the fact you're just in this kind of block block of corridors and and lift shafts and things, and so there seems to be an inexplicable. You know, you know you're in there. You've got to you've got to collect these things. It, it, there is a mystery, but. I think I think you're right, um, and they they never re- something they never really recovered either because later down the line, of course, we'll we'll end up discussing Impossible Mission Two, which suffered from a more of the same problem. So, mm. I mean, as much as I and I do really hold the game in in high regard, partly because it's an, a kind of an epic game, and they were they had a, a way of releasing really great games at that time. The animation's great, there's atmosphere. It is just, you know. How much time you can you can you really give it, knowing that some of those screens are going to drive you insane with difficulties? <laughs> exactly, and they do. Yes, I get it. It is important, and I think it's very good. It's you know for its roguelike elements, its open worldness, 
Um, yeah. It's it, it's you know it's impenetrability. It's non you know it's it's mystery. It's mystery. Yeah, what a mystery. Um, I think it, it it is really unusual. It's a really unusual you know early game. Um, it just it, it just I think something in I think all those elements if they'd have just nailed the control of the player better yeah. better it needed a bit of finesse right yeah. he's just a bit no somersaults no, he's too long like no it's just you know <laughs> simple jump and perhaps you don't always have to run full pelt yes so I but it, i tell you what it's much better than the next game in the list <laughs> uh yes it is yes yes it is um i mean i get you know obviously you've only got one speed with a joystick sort of thing but i, I get it but just just uh, so yeah anyway impossible mission it is good but it's impossible um, as the name <laughs> says. Um, but at least it's better than Monty Mole. Monty Mole would go on to better games. So I think that's a, I think we can safely say that. It, it, in my mind, it, it, it sort of sticks as kind of a um, uh, manic minor kind of idea. Yeah. But not not nearly as implemented. And not that I even like that game. I don't I don't like that kind of game either. And this just felt the same. And then in fact, the, the game I played very when I replayed it, it became very frustrating very quickly for the same reasons. I just kept jumping and dying and hitting things. And I was like, no, this is not my cup of tea. They're busy. They're really busy levels as well. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't get on with it at all. Um, I, no. I felt no enjoyment from it. I'm surprised to see it was a Tony no. Crowther game, um, which well, I never realized I, it was. I thought that because the graphics, the graphics had that kind of Tony Crowther as, and as we'll discover, as we go through more of the, more of the zap to the past games and the zaps and Tony Crowther's games become more prominent that he has a graphic kind of a graphic style when you, we get to trap and things like that. We'll see. All yeah. That, but, yeah. But, um, but I wasn't a fan of Monty Mole. I wasn't a fan of the spectrum version of any of these types, those types of games at all either. So for me, it just felt like a blocky version of something I hated. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, no, it's Duplo. It's Duplo <laughs> Lego. Nobody likes Duplo Lego. No, Nobody. No, it's... Just get real Lego, proper Lego. <laughs> Yeah, if you can have Lego, you don't need six foot blocks. Just small, tiny blocks is fine. But, okay. but he will come back much better, Monty Mole. Yes, he does. He does return. Now we have our first uh, again a proper sequel, a proper sequel to something we mentioned earlier that was awful. Um, and yep. That actually somehow I, I have no idea how um, is incredible, and that is pit stop. That is pit <laughs> stop two. If you if you look at pit stop, pit stop is dreadful. It's awful. It's, it's terrible. The only thing that's interesting is that pit stops, pit stop two, it's like it's running on a different machine. I've, I've no yeah. to this day, I still think pit stop two is one of the great technological feats on the on the C sixty four. For 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 those who don't know, sort of thing, pit stop two is a split screen, um, you know, driving game where you drive around replications of, of real world tracks you can do in the six of them held in memory it's all in 64k so hockenheim no, not the nurburgring this brands, uh, brands hatch um there's the six sort of tracks from the 80s um and they're replicated properly sort of thing so when there's a right turn you turn right when there's a hairpin it's a very yeah, tight it's a sharp yeah, bend, yeah um, and this is all done full split screen um the cars exist in that you overtake exist properly in space so that if you're some distance ahead of the person behind you and you overtake a white car instead of it just being some random car that you've just gone past a little bit later the, the guy behind you will pass that same white car uh, same yep. with anything else there is some there is a, you know these things exist in in that space and if you then hit um a, a track and slow down something that white car will come past and overtake you um, there's, th- these cars exist in, in, on that track. They're, they're, there's a sense of persistence to this. Um, you've got fuel meter to monitor. Now, I know that was in the first game, but this is a 
you know, you've got um, you've got to keep an eye on your fuel because you won't have enough fuel to last the whole race. So you need to go into the pits and fill your fuel tank up. You've got to keep an eye on your tires. Your tires go through a series of colours, um, getting lighter and lighter. There's these little bars across the top of your tires. Uh, which is a really nice touch sort of thing. It's almost, first of all, you kind of think it's like a highlight on them, but that highlight changes colour to how much wear and tear they're, they're, you know, how close they are to sort of bursting. If you don't see to them and you hit a car and it's at white, you the tire pops, you're out of the race. Um, yeah. And brilliantly sort of thing, the other player goes whizzing past you, um, which hmm. is really good and, um, and, and will keep lapping you if you just let them sort of thing. And if you're a real, you know, you're an evil bastard, you will do that. Um, you'll just leave the other player. You're going, no, no, I'm going to finish the race. Thank you very much. Um, and so all this in absolutely, you know, it's fast. It feels really fast. Um, it, the graphics are really nice. They're really solid, yep. crisp, chunky, lovely sprites around everything. The the, the pit stops are a really good, um, there's a really good sense of sort of urgency to them. Getting the, you have to keep an eye on your fuel that you don't overfill. You've got to change the tires, pick a tire up, take it in, take it back, and then get back out on the track as quickly as you can. It, it's incredible. I, it, it's, I still play it to this day because I still think it's it's worth playing. And it is a great, it's a great split screen game. It's a great two player game because it really does like that, that especially when you get that dual wine. You know, you hated the wine in the first game. This yeah. somehow makes a wine that is not here piercingly horrible. And especially when you get a duel when you're both at full speed, you know, going yeah. past stuff. Fabulous. I, 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 yeah, I, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about Pit Stop 2. No, I think yeah, I agree. I mean, they redeem themselves big style with Pit Stop 2, right? Because Pit Stop had problems. There's no doubt about that. Mm. But just the fact that this is, I mean, just, f- it's a, gr- I mean, two player wise, this game is great fun. Mm. From the get go, it's great fun. I mean, in one player, okay, you get, you're racing against a computer, whatever. But when you're playing this game two player, those tactical pit stops that you have to make, you're watching your tyres. And it's just, it's clever. The game is clever. There's no way no way to else describe it. Graphically, it's all good. It, you know, it looks like a racetrack. The racetrack animation's fast. The game feels like it's got pace. You know, I love the fact that it's got those little tiny strips, animated strips on the tyres that give you an indication when they change colour of the state of the tyre. It's just clever. It's clever mm. ideas like that that make this game a step above anything else of that type at the time. Mm. Let alone the fact that you could plug two joysticks in and just, you know, and have a really good race. And the races lasted a long time, right? This is not like you were, the race was over in a couple of minutes. You know, you were, you were going into this race for 50 laps. You now you were committing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. No, and, that, and that made it, you know, if you were going to do a Grand Prix in Pit Stop 2, you were, you know, you had to take some time to, to realise <laughs> that you're doing a Grand Prix. And uh, and it's, it's, it's and I'm not a fan of, and I had friends, and well, we both had friends back then that were quite big um, Formula One fans. And even they would, they would have stopped and said, actually, you know what, there was nothing else like it. No. no other games were like it on any, not even on any of the other consoles or any of the games of the com- and computers at that time. This was truly unique to the Commodore 64, and it's one of its greatest racing games still. And I, 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 I agree with you completely. A really, truly brilliant game. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. It's also a great strategy as well. Like the the fear you'd get when you had you had gone halfway around a, a lap and your tire was glowing white, and you know yeah. that one touch was gonna you know pop it, or you were close to it bursting. And then the, the just player two or player one, whoever it was, sort of thing. Especially if they were in front of you, slowing down, so that your front <laughs> tire, you, they'd be like luring you into their back tire, so that your tires yeah. would pop. You're like that level of strategy you could you could sort of play around with and almost you know absolute grief your your opponent sort of thing. Oh, brilliant! It's such a such well, a good abs- game. I mean, it, it it wasn't just it wasn't just floor pedal to the floor, 
go around the track as fast as possible. You need to think about how you play this game because if you were going, you couldn't play it erratic. You know, this wasn't outrun. This isn't something where you could just get in a car, drive around a track, and if you crashed, oh well. Mm. If you hit other vehicles, you were going to wear your tires down, and you needed to make a pit stop. And, and it, it was—it's a clever game, mm. yeah, it really is, and a really great racing simulator of which there was nothing else of that type at that time. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, pole position was out and about, and that, but there was nothing on that. This was way better than that. Yeah, way because it had there was much more to it, it much more depth yeah. to and it. And the sound effects are—you know—it's still kind of that drone, but it's actually like you say. You've got so much to think about in the game; it just becomes, you know, the noise in the background, which is exactly what it really probably is. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, you are focusing more on the track and the cars and your tires and the fuel. Yeah, that the, the the drone. You don't want something that distracts you too much, so that almost just lures you no. into this the flow state of just of moving through it. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, Absolutely. brilliant game. Pit stop two, and, yeah. and, and still worthy of people going back to that. I have to say. play Raid over Moscow? I dived briefly into it <laughs> and I found it quite impenetrable. <laughs> yeah. And I'm guessing it's a game of its time. Well, it's it's the part sequel to Beachhead, isn't it? Uh, so it's made by the same guys. Uh, the car, Carver, one of the Carvers, Bruce... Bruce Carver. It, just, it was just kind of crazily <laughs> difficult to even do anything with. Yeah. It doesn't help itself in the fact you've got to move your ship around and then press, press a random button to open the, the Bombay doors and get out. Yeah. Um, it's very much a product of its time. Um, for those who don't know, Raid of a Moscow, Raid of a Moscow sees, it starts off with like a, 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 a view of the globe, a view of the Northern globe, um, Northern part of the world. And a missile is launched from Russia heading towards uh, America. I think you've got something like six minutes. So you come sauntering out, <laughs> and I can only you know only describe it as a saunter. There's no there's no rush in that guy getting to the air, the airplane. <laughs> he's not he's not overly he's worried not, at he, that he's, plane, it he's, seems. he's just finished off his sandwich and going. Oof, if I run, it's going to give me a bad tummy. Um, so so he saunters <laughs> over to his plane, um, of which he is like maybe like three quarters the size of as well. It's um, a very tight, small <laughs> I don't know. cockpit. I don't know. That plane, let me tell you. I, I can only assume that he's just laid down in the entire length of it because um, <laughs> he's quite big compared to that plane. So he gets in this plane and you, and it immediately starts moving and you're kind of playing some form of like weird version of asteroids um, in the fact that you've got a... But it's in pseudo 3D. Um, it's not yeah. isometric. It's kind of like going into the screen. You've got pseudo 3D effect and you've got to get out. You've got to open these doors at the back and fly out and this sort of like this this airplane sort of thing that ha- that won't stop, <laughs> it just cannot be stopped. It, um, <laughs> it will always be going backwards or forwards or slightly in the direction you don't want it to go. And it's all about force and friction. You need to push it in the right direction, kind of like asteroids. When you get out of there, you really slowly fly your plane because for some reason you're in an orbiting space station, which I never quite understood. Um, you have to fly your plane down to Moscow um, really slowly. Um, I mean, they could have done without that bit, really, if I'm thinking about it. Um, and they got you get down to Moscow, and then it's essentially beachhead. Yeah. Um, you fly along through the streets of Moscow, blowing up stuff, uh, whether that's buildings or school buses or whatever. <laughs> so very bizarre. <laughs> but, you know, they're Russians, so in that time of day, sort of thing, anything was game. Um, and that's pretty much what the what the attitude was in, in those back in the 80s. Um, and, and and then you know that's what it was. Uh, it was quite impenetrable. It's quite it's very hard. Um, and to me, 
it didn't have the charm of Beachhead. No. Um, and I think it was a, it was a, I can see why it's remembered, but it's a, it's a bit of a misstep for me, I think, after Beachhead. Yeah, I agree. And it's a game totally of its time. I mean, it's playing right into that kind of 80s paranoia about Russia, you know, and we're not far off the kind of the Rocky Four, I think, and that mm. kind of, you know, and, and all that kind of... Um, those that kind of thinking at the time that you know there was the kind of the big nuclear menace and it kind of plays straight into that, mm-hmm. um, but not in a very exciting way. You know, it's it just it felt that in the different way to Beachhead, which you no, know, it has it certainly has its moments and but it's kind of a collection of mini games. This felt like a collection of mini games that just had a kind of a Russian theme that didn't quite work for me. Yeah, yeah. Look visually, I think it's a bit of a step up from. Uh, yeah. Beachhead, it looks looks quite nice, and the the presentation I think is re- is is quite nice. Yeah. The fact that it's Slick. constantly in game, you know that whole, you know the launch of the missile and, and the you yeah. know and the like. It, there's a there's a lot to be said about the sort of the the feel of it. It's it's quite nice, but it's it's a bit too much sort of. Uh, it's trying to almost be like, look what we can do, rather than. Yeah. Do I need to do this? Just get me in the plane. Yeah. Every time, every time you have to have that same guy saunter out. It's like, no, what? Run! There's a missile heading to blow up some city in America. Can you move to the plane a bit faster? Exactly, and I, and I can't help but feel there's a little bit of that kind of Firefoxy kind of thing, thought process behind that part as well. Yeah, it's the opposite to Impossible Mission. That guy always runs. <laughs> we needed we needed him <laughs> to run and somersault into that plane. That's what we needed here. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, ready for Moscow. It's all right. It uh, looks nice, but, you know, I think play Beachhead. Right, next. A uh, few left. Uh, I think this might be one that you, you could probably speak on more than me, actually. It's Spy versus Spy. Yeah, Spy versus Spy is, it's a mad, they're, a mad, they're mad characters. And I mean by that, they're Mad Magazine characters. Mad Magazine isn't something I have a lot of familiarity with. It's a US magazine, I think. that with, I'm not even sure exactly what kind of magazine it was. By reputation alone, and my feeling is it's full of interesting characters. Two of those were these spy characters that basically the idea of the game is you have to try and kill each other. Um, and you get a range of traps and bombs and things that you can leave and you're in kind of an ex- a mini exploratory environment. Um, it's best played as two-player where play one is at the top part of the screen. Again, it's a split-screen game. So play one is at the top, play two is at the bottom. You both have equal access to the kind of traps and you have to sort of run around if you bump into each other, you can fight and try and shoot each other. But the really idea of the game is to lay these traps, um, wait, so you can see the traps you place, but the end, the other person can't, and you've got to try and trap them and blow them up and kill them off before they kill you. So, mm. hence the spy versus spy part. The character graphics has taken, I imagine, straight from the magazine. So they're quite neat little sprites. I'm not sure if they're kind of like rats or what they are underneath ferrets. I'm not sure what kind of creature it was, but. <laughs> they're of a type um but the game had a look it was fun it was a good two-player game um and um it just i think it suffered from it never had a lot of longevity so no it's not a game that after a few plays with somebody you know it it could get a bit tiresome and you know once you've done all the traps and you've done all through all of that um it just became a bit samey you know there was no if it had an upgrade tree so you could actually buy more different kinds of traps and which is probably something that would come into either the later versions or later kind of game experiences but at this particular time with the kind of memory limits and the sprites and the graphics that are in it um you're limited to just kind of these small selection of traps and bombs and i think um, it suffers a little bit from its inability to be bigger than it wants but as an experience for two players 
initially, you know, it's got a few hours of fun in there, I thought. Anyway, what did you think? Yeah, I think my problem with Spy vs. Spy was that I never had anyone to play it with. Um, yeah. And I don't think I ever really... I think I'm, I think my brother played it once and he didn't like it. So I think as a, yeah. a single-player game, it's really dull um, because the yeah. AI for the computer is so good. Um, I used to find that they'd just go, just go charging through it and be gone before you knew what was going on. Um, and they would never fall for your traps. Um, so I, 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 I never really... I wanted to like it. I think I liked the style of it and the and the fun feel of it and and that sort of thing. But I think it was. I think you hit the nail on the head that once you'd seen everything it had to offer, I think it was. Um, it just it, it shot its load. Um, and I think as a single play game, which is how I experienced it mostly, which was a shame. Um, it just it didn't really click. So I think it's a it's it's a good it's a it's an Assassin's Creed. It's a good template. Yeah. You know, it's a good proof of concept. Uh, that, may, yeah. that probably got better out in what was sequels was it Island Caper or something or yeah um, and, and in all yeah you're right and I mean in modern day times right this would be an online game a mobile game Among Us is a similar kind of uh, idea in some ways yeah absolutely it is yeah yeah so do you know so um, you know it, it is a precursor remember this is pre-internet and pre anything like that so you mm-hmm. know two player is two people sat in a room not two people over a network or anything. So for that, um, it, it did it did have something, but it relied on that because the actual AI, such as you'd call it if you were playing against the computer, was pretty perfunctory and, and actually pretty rubbish. So you didn't have a great experience. <laughs> it was a two-player game. Yeah, maybe I was but, just rubbish at things. Yeah. It always used to hammer me. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was, but it was no fun, you know, yeah. because mm-hmm. part of the fun of that game is, you know, if you played a bomb for your friend and you're playing with your friend and it blows them up, it's, you know, it's, it's that kind of, you know, Side by side, ha ha, you know. Yeah. You know, I've just, you know, whereas if it's the computer, there's no real payoff. Mm. Um, and I think it's, and it, as all the Spy versus Spy games, even the ones that came later, which were actually a lot better graphically and everything, they all suffered from a very similar yeah. problem is that if the, if you don't have someone to play it with, um, and then it suffers. Oddly, there's a couple of games which will occur later, you know, things like um, um, International Karate and stuff like that that actually didn't suffer from that problem yeah. for, for very different reasons, but we'll cover that. True, yeah. Yeah, there's something very sad about a 13-year-old boy laughing at his computer when it got into one of its uh, bombs um, <laughs> just because he's got no friends around at the time. <laughs> just sat yeah. in his bedroom. That was great, wasn't it? <laughs> just silence. Like, yeah. oh. you, 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 you died, commie. <laughs> commie, comma, commie Commodore. I bet that, in my mind now I've got this kid sat there with his joystick and two glasses of orange. <laughs> I was never I, I was never allowed two glasses. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's just got one from him and one from the, the person that he would, would have otherwise have played it with. But he's like, no, we, shall I drink yours, Timmy? No, no, that's no, we for Timmy. We couldn't afford glasses. No. I just had them on my hands. Okay, so that's Spy vs. Spy. Uh, good, with, good with someone else for a while. I think it's, uh, it's overly there, so there we go. Uh, right, um, Summer Games. Not going to talk too much about Summer Games uh, because, really, Summer Games was the precursor to Summer Games 2, which was and, and World Games and California Games and all those sort of things. Uh, but Summer Games um, saw the man from Impossible Mission, <laughs> uh, Donny's track, uh, tracksuit bottoms and his vest top, um, uh, get a bit of a tan um, and head on over uh, to the Olympics. Um and I'm not going to talk too much about Summer Games because it was okay. I think, as I said, it's a precursor. But um, for myself, um, I played an inordinate amount of the diving yeah. in Summer Games. Um, of all the events that were in Summer Games, I think it was the diving 
um, for some reason um, that I would play over and over and over again. I would, and I, and I think this is more a comment on 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 my sort of <laughs> sad sad Sunday afternoons in the eighties, um, where I would play eight different people from eight different countries against all four repeatedly, just diving off against each other. Um, constantly playing it, you know, the back dive, the forward dive, the upside, whatever the dives were, I can't remember, I think there were four of them. Um, and I, I loved it. I, you know, it was one of those games sort of thing which I just found perversely, incredibly, incredibly enjoyable, sort of thing, trying to get the perfect dive. Yeah. I hate diving. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a swimmer in the slightest, but for some reason, the, the, the virtual pixelated version of diving in summer games was a, a, a real winner. Uh, as far as far as I'm concerned, and and yeah, I, I'll speak a lot more about Summer Games too. But I think Summer Games does deserve an honorable mention just because, as I said, it you know it's got the guy from Impossible Mission in it, and and I think because Pit Stop Two was Epics, wasn't it? It was, but yeah, yeah. So Pit so Pit Stop Two. I mean, Epics uh, are worth a mention at this stage because I think Epics had become something of a bit of a force. Yes. So we're one of the few American companies um, in the early days that really made a, a splash over here. Um, the, you know, US Gold brought some other things over, and some other bits and bobs, Activision, things like that. But a lot of the games, um, you know, were, were, we would look at would be would be English sort of thing. Maybe some of the a lot more English games sort of thing. But it's I think actually looking through this, a lot of them are American, yeah. um, which is strange. Really, I thought we'd be looking at a lot more British games, but not. I mean, I suppose the Commodore sixty four was an American machine. Yeah. Um, would, would would sort of uh, acknowledge that? So it would sort of explain that. But um, yeah, but I think summer games and epics in particular. Um, we're on a rich vein of form in this early days um, of, of the Commodore Commodore area sort of thing, and, and I think that's it's worth a mention just because it led to those much yeah. much better ga- games games yeah. you know win, win, winter California yeah. summer too absolutely uh, and things like that. Um, did you play it much? Um, I wasn't a big fan of summer games. I'm like you. I much preferred the later variants of the Epic Games World games, especially. Um, and um, winter games summer games for me is a, a now mm. there's a couple of things that are worthy of note one I mean they must pick the sports in these games by some kind of dartboard or something because they are the most <laughs> random game sports to put into a summer games because I mean they kind of follow a pattern when you see decathlon and activision decathlon and those kind and I know they're decathlon events and based on that but even those kind of games this is pole vault and shooting and diving and and the, the fact that they ch- they took on those sports is interesting in in of themselves, and that, that's something that they followed through all the way through these kind of summer world, summer games two, and all of those California games. They all had really unique games in the micro games, and they're quite clever in their own way. Just summer games was kind of the blandest of all of them, really. But I suppose it was the first. It sets up benchmarks. Um, who can forget? Who can really forget the selection of the anthems page? And those horrific mm. versions, in some instances, of those. <laughs> but, it, but but conversely, <laughs> and, and to be fair, I learned more national anthems from that screen by just going, "Wonder what mm-hmm. the national anthem for Japan is." Click on that one, and you get a version of it. And they're not. Some of them are a bit discordant, but you know, that's a screen with how many flags on it at the time. That's unheard of for a game to be celebrating the cultures and the sports of all those different nations, let alone in one mm. game. And I know this was a disc game or a tape game, so. For tape load for tape users, it was a kind of a frustrating experience of bits of loading and stuff. The disc bomb, less so. And of course, this was the first game that featured the Vorpal loader, um, and we'll talk much more about that later down the line because they developed the most rapid game loading I think I've ever seen in any in any disc-based games. But 
Suffice to say, it was the earliest of this, the weakest of them all, strangely. That seems to be a bit of a thing because Pit Stop was the weaker version, but when the second version comes out, that's a whole different matter. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, yeah, it had gymnastics yeah, in. That's what I mean. <laughs> gymnastics, really? 4x400 meter relay, freestyle relay. When you're doing that dive in, you know, when you do smash into that pool, doing, and like I did repeatedly <laughs> re- when I replayed it, the inability to be able to straighten. Um, you know, it didn't help. You know, but it, there was a hilarious moment where I did what can only be described as the world's crappiest dive ever, backwards dive ever, and I scored not point five from the first judge. It just made me laugh out loud because it was the only score I got not point five. Thinking he must, there was a part of that that he liked. It must have just been oh, but he must be injured after that. I'll give him at least half a point. So, little moment. Just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved it. I loved that. that what too keen on all the rest of them, but the diving. Yeah. There was just something about that diving. Absolutely. That, um, it, yeah, I loved it. So worth a mention. But yeah, I think it's worth a mention as well because of the, like you said, the um, the things it ushers yes, in. Yes, it brings in a develop, whole era of things. Yeah, the development path yes, that goes on absolutely. from there. Um, and just quickly, just to wrap up our sort of highlights, maybe and some lowlights, I guess, or some dimensions of uh, 1984. We've got a couple of... Um, uh arcade conversions yes um there were, there were a lot of these um uh i'm not going to speak about, i'll let, let you speak about one sort of thing i think uh, i remember having it actually it was a strange soft case soft case tape yeah that was that was for zaxon yeah. so zaxon was another one of those isometric uh-huh. people claim it isometric classic um, it is what it is, isn't it? It's a bit of a. It's. It's. I don't know. It's just. I don't know. Like I think we're. I think we're right. Trying to dive and move left and right in isometric space just, in two D. Just confusing. It's, it's, uh, it's just confusing. <laughs> it's like the human brain is not meant to work in no, that that spectrum. You know, this game adds isometric depth via a shadow sprite. So. You've got that to deal with, so you have to make sure you're higher than the walls. But the sprite is only really a dis. It's just this is a this is a you know a this isn't 3D really. It's kind of just it's just crazy and it's hard. So crazy. Yeah. Hard. Even trying to align yourself to shoot things is hard. And the C64 conversion was all right. Yeah, yeah, it's it okay. capable. You know, it's it's it's, it's a bit capable. sparse, but it's 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 fast and you know, but it's just boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other, yeah, so Zap, Zaxxon, yeah, is what it yeah. was. Uh, there was a you know, raft of those games oh, around sort of thing. Just... I think, I think for the, for the, you know, isometric, weird, weird thing. Um, and the other one, um, again, uh, was Tapper. Um, <laughs> so if, if anyone remembers Tapper, Tapper is a, a root, root beer Tapper, whatever the Bally Midway Tapper, yeah. whatever the damn thing's called. Um, Tapper is a strange old game. Yeah. Um, you play uh, a barman um, with four bars to fling drinks along. When you and there are patrons moving slowly towards you along each of these bars, like some kind of uh, drunk zombies. Yeah. Um, that if they reach you, you die. Um, uh, and then you basically have to knock them out of the bar. <laughs> and if you knock them out of the bar, that's fine. And once you clear all the bars, yay! End of level. Uh, end of level. Move to the next one. There are more patrons repeat until you've got four patrons on each bar wanting drinks now what happens is is that they throw the glasses back at you if they don't get flung out the thing so you have to make sure you catch them don't let any smash don't let any get to the end don't throw 
drinks down an empty bar or where people are all drinking because no one will catch it and you'll smoke. Oh, it's just, as is an arcade game, it's great. So I think, oh God, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it breaks your head. Yes. Um, but I want to mention Tapper sort of thing because it's one of those memory games for me sort of thing again. Um, for some reason, my brother um, who bought the Commodore 64 was quite a lot, quite a bit older than me. He's so 12, 13 years older than me. Um, this became this this something in this game and my brother's brain melded um into and he could he played this one afternoon for what i can i wanted my commodore 64 back because i considered it mine he bought it obviously but he must have played this for a good four or five hours straight he couldn't die he couldn't i don't know what was going on he'd just be the four people on the screen and it was just it'd become like some tapper automation same watching him I'd, i went out i came back in he was still tapping away um, it, I've never seen anything like it, and he's never melded with a game like that. And I do use the word melded because I'm pretty sure there was something, something happened um, that I, I was, you know, it was kind of worrying to witness. Um, but he, I, I wouldn't let him play it afterwards, even though it was his machine, <laughs> because I wasn't going to get the com- I wasn't going to get the, the, the computer back for hours. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so it has a it has a thing, and I'm playing it again now, sort of thing. It's a good game. Yeah, it's a fun it's a fun game. It's a good conversion. Nice big graphics, yeah. chunky stuff. Um, interesting thing. Visuals are all right. Yeah. I think it's a nice arcade game, and you can see it working well in the arcade. Yeah. But God, he he would have annoyed the hell out of arcade owners, arcade owners because he'd have put ten p in and been there for hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> in all fairness, uh, it's one of those games. And there's a few arcade games like it that just kind of exist in their own little arcade space. Um, there's a few like it, so I'm not necessarily like Tapper in the sense that it's a bar and you've got the throw the glasses and all that. But there's just games that exist in their own arcade space that would naturally be a good conversion for the Commodore 64. And Tapper was one of those um, because it's all on one screen, because it involves you know relatively straightforward, simple sprite layers so that you know you're not you've not got lots of complex animations going on you've just got to know and that that plays to the commodore 64 strengths and so it was always going to be a good conversion now why our brother had such an affinity and ability on that game is a mystery and i just for some reason i really want him to have worked in a bar so when he got out of that went to work in the bar and just slid drinks to everybody and he was like that's why he's so good because he does that you know, but I, I I really wish that was the case, but no, I never had any bar experience as far no, as I'm aware. I've no, so. I've just, but uh, some people just find their game uh, mojo, right? And it is frustrating mm. when you've got someone who just becomes really ace at a game, and you just want them to get off, <laughs> get off. You just feel like switching it off, but the pound like, no, that would be too much. Now that's 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 beyond anger inducing. You know, you don't need to get beaten to the beaten up. <laughs> it was yeah, it was a it was a crazy <laughs> thing. I've never, uh, I'm, you know, I. I just one of a strange thing it's a really strange thing that I've, like i said i've never seen him with any other game that he really liked he, he, there was another one game he liked called henry's house <laughs> um which was a crap platformer um but he, he really liked that for some reason but yeah tapper tapper my brother well, the thing is i bet if you look back and you thought about the times when you've played certain games you probably found that there's a game that you did that to i mean i remember playing um the way the exploding fist 2 came out which was awful but on the b side of that cassette there was a like a version of Way the Exploding Fist, which is a karate fighting game, for the better description. But um, there was a kind of a tournament version on the back side of that, which for the first time was kind of a fighting, jumping and kicking game. But I just remember playing that with a friend at the time who was kind of, he was a martial artist in, in the making, he was into all that kind of stuff. And just playing it for about four hours straight, just beating him one after another for four hours and became invincible at that game. 
I just remember how frustrated he was getting when I was playing it. So I feel for you because there's nothing worse than having somebody <laughs> sat there for hours and hours and you're just like, how come you're not dying? Because <laughs> it gets yeah. fast and hard tapper, right? It's hard. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I, I could never do it. I had way better reactions and everything than my brother sort of thing. And I was fast, you know, younger than him and everything like that. But that game, no, he was just, a, he was like some tapper master. In my mind right now, I'm seeing that scene in um, The Last Starfighter where he's playing that game and then all the crowd around, <laughs> crowding around him because he just becomes like one with the game and they're like, wow, go for it, everyone. And just one stare. But you are something going with your finger over the switch going mm, anytime now <laughs> it could really, all be over <laughs> that last starfighter would be a really different film if he had to play tapper <laughs> and, uh, and uh they, they had to, he had to it was it was just some it was some barman from another dimension that was coming to see who, who would be the perfect barman we've got really pro- bad problems in the bar in the nebulous region and we need you to come come along and, and you're the ultimate barman only you can sort out these troublesome bar I think people be, it, it, it would actually be just as i think effective if um, Santari, Santari, I think his name is, comes down from space to take you to pick you up to take you to fight the fleets of the Zor and the Kodan Armada. And when you tell him that you're just good at Tapper, he's like, eh, <laughs> just put him in a spaceship. He's bound to be good at something in there. The whole game dynamic would be different if you just, right, I'll tell you all, we'll beat this enemy. We'll just line up and uh, we'll just shoot them from the side repeatedly from four, four different heights. Yeah, it's perfect sort of thing. Just manage, make sure we've got. Is it? Was it? Who was the lead now? Was it John Saxon? Uh, no, that, no, I'm that's, thinking that's, of the wrong uh, film. No, in the lead, I'm not that's sure who it is. On the stars, it? Yeah, in the lead in uh, the Last Starfighter oh, is really kind just... of. A, I don't know his name actually. It's kind of a scrawny bald guy who called. He's in oh, the film. Yeah. It's called Zor. <laughs> I really feel John Saxon. No, that's Sador of the Malmori <laughs> from Back Beyond the Stars. That's a that's a whole different. Just... Uh, that's a whole different. Just throw a that's a whole at... different thing. <laughs> just throw a drink at John Saxon. Well, he's got a stain on his head, so someone must have hit him in one once in that movie, yeah? yeah there we go. Yeah. Anyway, Tapper it is what it, it is. is. And uh, it is what it is. And, and I think that sort of rounds up um, our games of those first couple of years. And I think it's, a, it, it's an interesting bunch of games yes. because there's other ones we could have picked. There's, there was a thousand to pick yes. from. Um, but, but, you know, and, but so many of them were just you know, garbage. Well, yeah. And so many of them are just var- variants of an arcade theme yes. and, and not... Not not good conversions. The conversions we have picked are, are sort of you know interesting ones. But I think you know I think there's a there's a real sort of evidence of of, of you know really interesting sort of games sort of proliferating in this sort of early nation um, period of game design. Well, absolutely, where a bit more bit bit more power, a bit more oomph to home computers, and, and a bit more fr- freedom to not just be. Um, you know, not just be something where it was all about, you know, taking money off people repeatedly as arcades were. Yeah. They were designed around that. These could be something different. And I know like PCs and stuff had, you know, Wizardry and Ultra and all those kind of things going on. But I think the Commodore 64 was, you know, along with the Spectrum and stuff, was pushing gaming into interesting um, well, directions, it, definitely. Right. And I think, I think that's, that's mentioned something earlier, which is, I think, very important here, is that these games that we've mentioned in 1984, this is kind of the computer, the Commodore 64 was released in the UK, what, 1980. But actually, when people could afford one, probably 83 to 84, really. Mm. And, you know, so some of these games, that they are kind of, there is a bit of a US hint. There is a few little hints of, and there are some other ones that didn't make it into this list from, from the UK. But the UK and Europe didn't start to flex its muscles till 1985 and a bit beyond, I think. And and mm. I think what they think saw right, is that yeah. some of those... Some of those early game designers at this point are kind of 15, maybe maybe 14, 15, maybe maybe a little bit older than that, but they're playing these games and seeing what the machine's capable of. 
and then later mm. when they hit the you know then they hit their coding mojo um we you start to see the birth of a whole new dynamic of game designers game programmers game graphic designers and musicians and the whole lot and it really starts to escalate which is kind of the way i think zap came along when it did because it was a crest of an enormous wave yeah and you could see the early precursors in some of the games i mean some of these games are genuinely clever and but you know for for 1983 i mean the microwave wasn't i think i think that's i think that's spot on i think yeah it it took you know i think the spectrum took off a lot quicker because it was a british machine and a lot cheaper but i think once the c64 became more of a a direct competitor yes um over here and in europe as you're saying sort of thing that's when the you know the the bedroom wave sort of started absolutely in, in much earnest and, and i think so it's already happening in the in the u.s and we can see that with the games that have been picked you know they can see that they're all mostly u.s stuff and and actually thinking about it in that actually i think that's a very good sort of take on it that it took us a year or two yeah. um maybe two or three years really because uh, things don't happen like they do now I mean, in, in a week, as, week, week or two, there's the worldwide launch of the new consoles. Um, but, you know, that was unheard of. Yeah. You know, 30, 40 years ago, sort of thing. Things were released, you know, if you got it within a year, you were lucky. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, just take it back to the early 70s. You know, when I, w- I was born in 1973. I think you were 72. Um, just take mm-hmm. it, if you roll the clock back just that little bit before, you know, the idea of having a home computer was simply just, it was the stuff of science fiction, really. Certainly, one that was mm-hmm. in a, a micro package, even you know, even at Commodore sixty four Sinclair Spectrum size, the idea of that was just unheard of. And so, for these things mm. to come around, you know, circa ten to eleven, twelve years later, um, was kind of was kind of, um, and to have them sort of have games on them that were actually really good. Remember that Commodore was principally a business machines creator, and then they made calculators and they made business machines up to that point. And this was being heavily sold as a business machine, or the attempt was there to make it a business machine. And then, of course, you know, um, the people who designed and made the Commodore 64, they were kind of brought up on the old arcades kind of stuff. So you can see that genus of putting in sound chips and graphic chips and those things into that machine, which then mm-hmm. later overtook its business proposition because it was never going to be a great tool for business, even with 64K of memory. But, you know, no. the the idea that it could start to replicate some of these arcade games and that people in their own homes could then you know, build build these games themselves and sell them or and make make a living and then later on obviously form companies was just something that appealed greatly to that that um the guy in his shed kind of mentality in the UK especially, where we're a nation of kind of tinkerers and programmers and wannabe designers and stuff. And you know, this mm. machine was just it was just a, a gift to people who wanted to do that because it was so open and available to program on in a way that computers weren't later down in my experience prior to this was all BBCs and school computers so this was mm. a, an amazing thing to see that this could do the things it could do yeah yeah I think I think you're right sort of thing I mean why would a business machine need eight hardware sprites <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, and a three and a three channel essentially a three channel synthesizer yes, absolutely there's no re- there's no reason if you're doing a business machine that you're going to put that in there this was this was made for games. Absolutely, yes. It's a, and the, the actual, and I mean, we'll, we'll cover that in a much later episode, I'm sure. But the synthesizer part and the the sound chip inside the Commodore 64, as well as the graphic chip and other things, these are very, very cleverly designed. I mean, that's a you know, in of itself, you know, the equivalent synthesizers at the time were hundreds of pounds. So to have the ability mm-hmm. to do that inside of a computer and do all the other stuff it could do as well was, I, I mean, it's 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 hugely appealing to anyone that wants to do stuff like that at the time. So I think we'll take a break there. 
um, we'll wrap up. Uh, we'll come back and we'll wrap up with a bit of like 1984 trivia, what was going on. Um, and then uh, we've got a section where we're just going to have a quick look at uh, the uh, adverts um, that, were, that were out at the time. And then we'll be done. All right. So we'll see you in a bit. Okay, and welcome back. Um, okay, so we're coming to the end now. Um, we're going to look at 1984. What else was going on? So we've had a look at the games. Uh, what was going on in the film world? We've looked at um, 1983, 1982. We've seen a bit of a change. Um, and I think 1984 continues that change um, quite spectacularly. Um, could you guess what was number one? I want to say it's probably a Rocky movie, but I could be wrong. No, we've actually covered the game. Okay. Um, I don't remember them making a Daily Thompson. So is it Ghostbusters? <laughs> it is Ghostbusters, yes. Right, that figures. Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters was the number one film, uh, according to IMDb, in the UK in 1984, followed up by uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then Gremlins. Um, okay, good film. And, uh, yeah, it is. And then Police Academy. Again. It has its charm. <laughs> it has its charm. Who made Steve Guttenberg a star? Well, Police Police Academy did. No, I, it, as much as it's stupid, I still watch it if it come on. I st- yeah, I, I watch the first. I watch, I watch them all. Oh, I can watch the first one. I can maybe handle the second. <laughs> <laughs> just for not on broccoli. Yeah, I was going to say is it just uh, for that. The, the kung yeah, fu attack that, part. Yeah, yeah, that bit. Um, then we go all cheery. Number five with the Killing Fields. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not particularly happy. We go even you know, more. Well, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of this one of the series. Sudden Impact. Oh dear. Weirdly, no, was no. a number six. I, I find it weird that Sudden Impact, which is what the fourth, fifth, fourth or fifth, I think. Yeah. It's the. I think it's the fourth in it because Gauntlet doesn't count. No. So I think you've got Dirty, Dirty Harry. It's the fourth in the Dirty Harry yeah, season. Yeah, because so you've, you've got Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, and then there's that one yeah. after that. The Enforcer. The Enforcer, that's it, yeah. That's the one with so, uh, Tang Daly in it. Yeah. yeah, and then I think Sudden Impact, which was a sort of, you know, a, a Harry too a Harry too far. Yeah, well, it's getting, <laughs> you know, it, the more Clint Eastwood starts to look like a leathery shoe, <laughs> which he does, because he just becomes more leather and, and sort of hard-baked as he goes on. And, you know, he's pretty leathery in, in the first Dirty Harry movie, and then he becomes even leatherier. That's even a word he does. in, uh, in, in yeah. the, the following films to the point when in the end he's like just a shoe. It's just like a, it's just a sofa moving around. <laughs> he is. You know, he's, he's got Eastwood expressions. He does like four. Uh, you know, and that's it. You know, and just stares down the barrel of uh, pr- uh, no, ever larger guns, it seems to me you now. <laughs> uh, yeah, we go on from the joy of sudden impact to the joy of terms of endearment. Oh, dear. Oh, God. And then uh, Disney had another re-release with 101 Dalmatians. Um, The immensely disappointing and rather boring Greystoke was in at number nine. And then rounding up the number 10, uh, Footloose. Okay. Okay. Footloose isn't Uh, so bad. You know, ending on a a bit of a high. So that's the the films. Uh, You can see that, you know, the big blockbusters are starting to take more of a hold. Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, Hollywood is starting to produce these. I mean, if you look at nineteen eighty even just nineteen eighty two to eighty you know, eighty two had E. T. but then you had Gandhi and Chariots of Fire yeah. Porkies, this top three, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Gremlins, yeah. you know, these this is Hollywood starting to fire yeah. up its big, you know, 
change the uh, change the movie going. Finding that formula, that sort of super super multi screen formula, right? <laughs> yeah, that what the one line blockbusters and that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. See that starting to happen in the world of TV. What was going on in TV? It's got a couple of bits, maybe covering the world of TV. Um, what do we have? Uh, Fraggle Rock debuted on British telly. Well, I like Fraggle <laughs> Rock. You know, yeah, but, but uh, you I'm know. a huge Jim Henson fan, and I mean, a, a really big fan of Jim Henson stuff, all of it, including Sesame Street and everything. I think it's marvelous. Yeah, um, I always like the doozers. Yeah, I, I have a thing for them. It's these weird little men, the con- just construction <laughs> so, workers. <laughs> construction workers just constantly getting their stuff broken and getting annoyed, and they're just rebuilding it. I was like, they serve. I I, to this day, I have no idea what they're about. They yeah, always used to weird me very out. Very strange um, um, idea behind um, that kind of four strands yeah. and there's, there's these the fraggles there's those giant things there's the little doozers and then there's the guy that oh, lives yeah. with his dog in a lighthouse yeah it's a strange old yeah strange old program um one for you actually we've got a couple for you actually um uh it itv aired star trek the motion picture for the first oh, time oh dear oh dear so there you go so we were treated to um, Vija. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what that means? <laughs> that in 1984, at least half the nation was disappointed for a short space of time. <laughs> Vija. Yeah. Vija. We all cringed a little okay. bit when we realised that, you know, it was it was James Kirk in a really weirdly white outfit staring at an ink blot for 90 minutes <laughs> before finding out that it was actually just a crap satellite that had gone rogue. Yeah. Yeah. Vija. And then everyone, everyone always finds... Um, um, Alia, which is the bald woman in it, they always find her a bit alluring for mysterious reasons. But uh, mm-hmm. that's partially because halfway through the film, she just appears with no pants on for pretty much uh, the rest of the film when she reappears. <laughs> uh, it was a it was a big moment for a lot of sci fi fans in the eighties, probably. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't because um, you know, at the end of the day, it, people were expecting Captain Kirk, and what they got was Captain Decker, and it was all a bit weird. Let's just be honest. Yeah, yeah, but it's not great. But made by a very capable um, director, so there you go. It was, yeah. Robert Australia made and all sorts of stuff. Robert Wise? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Robert why there's Wise, so many yeah. sweaty close-ups. That guy does sweaty close-ups <laughs> better than anybody. <laughs> it does, you, know like the hot- you know what's funny, right? The animated version of Star Trek, which was around at that time, is exactly the same. So they're all sweaty close-ups in that as well. It like set a benchmark <laughs> for sweaty close-ups. No one wants a sweaty close-up of uh, DeForest Kelly. No, because, you know, I mean, it's just every five minutes you'll see Captain Kirk really close to the screen with a bead of sweat on his head and somebody in the background to the right or left looking relatively concerned. It's just these way he makes films, I think. Yeah. Andromeda Strain is the same thing. The Andromeda Strain is, yeah, lots of deep focus. Yeah, lots of that. Um, Another one for you. Um... Your favourite Doctor Who, Colin Baker, made his first oh, full appearance. No, he is not. <laughs> no, I nearly, I didn't really forgive them for the one that they were getting rid of. I liked Tom Baker, so when he was replaced with Peter Davison, I wasn't a happy chap, but I kind of put up with it, even though he had a, he wore a yellow boating outfit for most of it and a leak. And then I they it was replaced the him with Colin. Outfit. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, cricket, whatever. He just looked stupid compared to Tom Baker. And then, of course, <laughs> Colin Baker came along. I'm like, oh no. And yet the episode where he dies is that where Pete Davidson dies is a very good episode. Don't get me wrong. Um, Did you ever used to watch the Fast Show? Yes. You know the the annoying character in the office, Sam Mad Me, yeah. crazy me. Um, Colin Baker always used to remind the Colin Baker Doctor used to remind me of him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For some reason, sort of thing. I always thought that they were the same same thing. I don't know. I never. I, I think I turned off Doctor Who. Yeah. 
in the Peter Davison years. So when Colin Baker came along, I was fully out of it. It never um, really recovered. No, as for when Sylvester McCoy turned no, up. No, 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 don't ever go there. Ooh. No, when the day he fought a giant licorice all sort of man was the day Dr. Rue had taken a vicious <laughs> turn for the worse for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, later that year, the see if you can guess this from the descriptions, the, the most famous or a famous opening credits where we follow a, a couple of pairs of walking feet uh, debuted. Mm, God, couple it was a, a long, a long, a long running police TV oh, drama. It's got to be the 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 no. <laughs> what's it called? The bill. The bill. Yeah. 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 Went on forever. Yeah. That, meaningless that just... TV drama of nothingness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that that finally had sort of thing. So there weren't a lot really going on in eight. There's yeah. probably loads more going on, but for for us, it's like. Uh, um, you know, well, one, the big time. One, was... Actually, one highlight for Doctor Who fans that the, anyone will remember was that the, I think it was 1984, where the Five Doctors was aired, which is where, for reasons I can't be bothered to go into right now, Five Doctors are somehow in the same <laughs> timeline, but um, they end up having to go to this particular place. And there's a great moment in it where this, there's something called the Rascalon robot. They go to Rascalon, there's a Rascalon robot these Cybermen decide to try and attack it and he just takes out about 50 of them with arrows and they're all like puking Cybertronic liquid out. Just go on YouTube and, you know, you don't matter if you're a Doctor Who fan or anything like, but just for the sake of it, you know, spend five minutes looking up five Doctors and the battle with the Rascal on Robot because it is truly brilliant and a moment you'll okay. never forget once you see it. I'll, 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 I'll put that on my to-do list. <laughs> um Music, yeah, music again. I still really wasn't into music at this point. I think we'll cover a bit more music when we go into the 80s and stuff and we sort of look at more more in time with the Commodore 64. So, yeah, films, TV, you know, it, I think it's it, it, we can see a, a shift in movement sort of thing. So the big films were starting to come onto TV. We were starting to get premiere. Uh, it'd be worth sort of looking at maybe or thinking about the, the fact of like home video was was a thing Absolutely. now and, and this, this whole notion that films were becoming – more more accessible and more more available to, to watch um moving from cinema to, to video uh, and also um i can't remember if they'd already become i remember raiders of the lost art was the first one you could buy properly i don't know if that had already happened but it was a case of like being able to go to a shop and rent stuff things media and stuff that was it was it was it, you know like you said earlier sort of things you imagine this late 60s early 70s this notion of being able to actually record tv yeah and this notion of being able to get film whenever you really wanted mm. and take it home and watch it at your leisure for, for a pound or so yeah. or whatever it was you used to do it. Although the, I do remember the first videos we rented were five pounds for eight days. Yeah. I, I don't know who came up with that business model, but <laughs> God knows. Um, <laughs> but we paid it. Yeah. And I think the first film, first film we had was mash. Um, Goodness me. Uh, yeah, I know. Blame my brother. Um, so yeah, it was a change. It was a changing time in the consumption of media I mean, 1985 was about to see the sort of launch of MTV and things like yeah. that, um, and I think you can start to you can start to see this Hollywood is starting to churn these big films out. TV, uh, I think within this time as well, within this period of time, children's TV had become a thing. Yeah. Um, you know, special, specialist children's TV. So the, the hours after school had become, um, you know, the hours for watching, you know, kids' telly sort of thing, and, and that had started to sort of feed into you know all, all kinds of like you know saturating our brains with stuff. Yeah. Um, whether it was Danger Mouse or American TV shows or stuff from Strange Stuff from Japan yeah. or whatever, like Battle of the Planets and things like that. I don't know when those came out over here. Um, but yeah, th- things were changing. And, and and I think as we go into this and we start to get into our month-by-month progression and we start to look at the issues of Zap, 
we can look at these in a bit more detail. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they were, they were, you know, they were shifting times, and there's a few key things that we'll pick up on later down the line. Of course, um, I mean, primarily um, they were changing in scheduling for TV. Having TV available for longer meant they needed more TV programs, which meant they purchased a lot of American mm. um, syndicated shows. So that started to filter into UK TV in a different way. The films mm -hmm. again, the big blockbusters changed, but then. No, the niche filmmakers of mostly Italian, I think, and horror movies found a way of releasing things direct to video in the UK for a while. So that there was kind of a two two strands of movies. There was the ones you could go to the cinema and see, and then there was the ones that were kind of on the video that were a bit more underground. And that's something that probably will filter through in some of the games that we come across as later down the line when the thematics of them change a bit. So it was a crazy time of lots of avenues, lots of things and technologies really moving at a kind of a pace. And um, everything China kind of felt a little bit like playing catch up, I think. And the, the films are of their time, you know, there's a reason why those 90 minute blockbusters were becoming very popular. Um, and it's because, you know, that they, they were starting to be able to fit them into repeated slots on TVs. They were able to break them down into more chunks so they could advertise in them and make money off them in syndication. And, and, and it, that, it's sort of, you know, there's, you can see there's a changing of, changing of pace of the whole thing. Mm, well, yeah. Well, I mean, Dallas had already started to be broadcast just in the afternoon on the BBC, on BBC Two, I think. Um, another, yeah, another thing, to sort of just sort of tack onto the end of that before we sort of move on is the uh, is the notion that there would be more, you know, for for quite a long period, sort of thing, the way that media was consumed in a house, you know, with, with the you know, TV and radio was very much what 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 you were fed. Um, and suddenly, you know, it's like these things are on at this time, and you would watch them or listen to them. And suddenly, with the advent of video and the advent of computer games, you were actually in control of what media you consumed at what time. You be, you became almost, you know, we look, we think of that now, sort of thing, you know, how we consume Netflix and how we consume, you know, Amazon Prime and you know everything streamed when we want it, where we want it, how we want it, and what device we particularly choose. Well, this was kind of the start of that. This was kind of where that started, sort of thing of like, you know, home video, being able to go and get something and watch it when you wanted to watch it, being able to put on a computer game and not be beholden to what was on TV. You know, you could have your own, you know, you, you know your own, um, and anyway, people used to record songs off the radio and things like that, but this was visual stuff. This was taking control of your TV. This was taking control of the visual, visual thing in your house, which was really unheard of. It was absolutely, completely unheard of. And, and like, you know, secreting yourself away in your bedroom sort of thing and with a black and white telly and a Commodore or a Spectrum for long periods of time and just then, you know, playing games and, and doing stuff sort of thing that wasn't, you know, you know, this is the period where you watch kids' TV. This is when it's like, nope, none of that. Like, we just do whatever we want, whenever we want now. And I think that was this was the start of that time, I think. Anyway, on that note, Crapverts. So, yeah, so just as a final wrap-up, just for a bit of fun, um, nobody really knew what they were advertising back in the days of... Um, of these early magazines. So the early computer games magazines, there were things like computer video games and Commodore user. And principally the early versions of these just had listings that you typed into the, to make your own programs and games. We're not going to talk about that. What we're going to talk about is gradual um, <laughs> change in the way that the games are advertised because people started to realize you could start to make money off these if you sold enough copies. And so um, over time, more and more adverts for the game started to appear and they got more creative. I say creative, sometimes they were just plain weird. And so we've got to call this little section of the podcast Crapverts 
And um, I'm now referring to a specific issue of uh, computer video games. It's March 84. March 84, completely wrong. But we'll put all that, we know, <laughs> all this information we can put on the webpage or whatever we decide to do. Suffice to say, there's just a couple of games that I just wanted to dive into the advertising for and have a look at. <laughs> um, first one being, um, <laughs> there's a couple of games, there's two. Transylvanian Tower and Super Spy <laughs> by somebody called Richard Shepard. <laughs> Now, Richard Shepard Software is the name of the company that does those, and there's two images on these adverts, and I can only describe them as one. It's normally what actually throws you with these things. It's not so much the adverts, it's what they claim. So, Transylvanian Tower is apparently a spectacular 3D maze adventure. I don't necessarily believe that. And then in the little extra blurb, a spine-chilling adventure. Enter via the dungeons. Navigate your way through 500 3D rooms. Survive the swooping vampire bats. Reach the terrifying top. It was like conduct and kill Count <laughs> no, Creepy. Confront, confront, confront and, and kill, kill Count Creepy. Uh, ridding the world of this Transylvanian terror. Can you survive the top of the tower? Uh, okay. I'm thinking that someone's over-egging their pudding a bit there. Um, Count Creepy. In the, so they would, obviously, he doesn't want to use the term Dracula for blatant, I guess, copyright. <laughs> And then the next game on the same advert is Super Spy, which is blatantly James Bond, but in a bright yellow suit with a really small <laughs> helicopter. Um, and it just says a global spy chase and maze adventure. I'm getting a sense this guy made a lot of maze adventures. <laughs> Locate the secret island hideaway of the mysterious megalomaniac Dr. Death. Follow his trail across continents through complex puzzles, coded messages, and 3D mazes. Discover the entrance to the underground lair, but beware. Even with your death-defying gadgets, his evil henchmen may still win the day. £6.50 for that pleasure. I'm sorry, I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. On the same opposite page, there's a game that just shouts, uh, this is called Apocalypse by the company Redshift. The advert just says, be the warlord. Run cities, countries, continents, but be warned. Someone is about to press the button for Apocalypse, a game of strategy. I want a button for Apocalypse. <laughs> well, you know, the best part about that is there's other games that you could buy from the same guy. His new releases include Nebula, Rebel Star Raiders, First Empire, and Time Lords. Sensing somebody likes Doctor Who. There's actually four chapters to that Apocalypse game. And the graphics on the screens, I'm sure that's real. But just so you know, PCW, which was PC World Magazine, said, and I quote, Redshift has made the World of War Games-oriented computer games its own. <laughs> if you don't uh, think that's an endorsement alternatively you could opt for um, a game called the paratroopers have landed which i think the game is just paratroopers but paratroopers have landed is on the advert and it says i quote they will make your computer go crazy with fear <laughs> the good news is that one of the best game it says uh, terry grant from rabbit software says it's one of the best games yet that's because it's made by uh, rabbit software i'm guessing he's the owner and then it also it says, um, the next one down is an obscene celebration of slaughter. <laughs> Home Computing Weekly. It just doesn't sound like something they would say. Seems a bit too draconian, no. a bit heavy. Okay. I have, to, I have to say as well, these paratroopers don't look particularly scary. No. They look quite cuddly. Yeah. That, why is that helicopter flying sideways? Why is there so many? Where did they come from? Because they, they've been dropped from something and then they're just, you don't, you don't send paratroopers in to fight air, helicopters, of which there seems to be an abundance in that like five yes. alternatively if that's not for you you could dive into um, my personal favourite Savage Pond <laughs> now Savage Pond is made by a company called Starcade and for £8.95 on disc or cassette 
Um, and I'm going to read this description um, verbatim. Um, it is a truly remarkable depiction of life cycles in a freshwater environment. A semi-educational program with high-resolution graphics crammed with thrills, spills, and entertainment featuring... And I won't read the entire list, but amoebas, hydras, dragonflies, bloodworms, jellyfish, beetle larvae, spiders, water fleas, bumblebees, and the common frog. Um, and apparently it's a real joy. Now, I actually have downloaded and played Savage Pond, and I can tell you it's very, very far from a uh, pond simulation <laughs> of any kind. I just kind of angularly flew around as a tadpole um, collecting dots, and that was kind of the, the crux of that. It wasn't Certainly it was oversold. I'm not sure it's a totally unique concept, well thought out and superbly programmed. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it isn't. But that was just me. And then I suppose as a finale, um, there's a couple of uh, couple of worthy mentions. Um, you could always go for big G games and play Mega Hawk, where you uh, look like a fighting chicken, or Xylagon, where you look like a fighting ketchup bottle, or the inexplicable um, uh, Time Bomb. She's just no description of what that game is even is on the advert. It's just a giant shoe about to step on a bomb. Um, you have to figure the rest out yourself. The actual mainstay of the advert is for a chess game. So what that's got to do with the price of tea in China, I don't know. But they all made these kind of wild claims for the games. I mean, if you look at Imagine, which was a, a game label that later was merged with another company to make different games. But some of the games on their list include Stonkers, Our Didums, Alchemist, Zoom, Arcadia, Jumping Jack and Zip Zap. Um, and it says on the top of this from imagine don't just take our words see what the experts say what expert oh there is some quotes from there now this really is something special these bright young things that imagine have confidently pledged themselves to the production of totally original arcade games from a personal computer world again they seem to be doing a lot of stuff there's an advert for llama soft in that issue as well and then last but by no means least there's one there called micro mouse goes debugging i am pretty sure that that looks like the it, I think it's meant to be kind of a version of Mickey Mouse, but Mickey Mouse, if he got really old and <laughs> a little bit kind of, you know, a bit creepy looking. Yeah, I'm, I just want to add one one more. Uh, Trooper Truck. Oh, of course, yes, sorry, yes. Uh, tr- Trooper Truck, um, which uh, is basically a Moon Patrol, but looks like a Moon Patrol ripoff. Um, in this advert what only looks like a yellow hot dog on wheels <laughs> is being chased by really, really bad TIE fighters. Um, and the Trooper Truck is in, it's by Rabbit again, so more paratrooper stuff. Trooper Truck is in a very nice, soft uh, uh, text font. Um, but the tagline for it is the galaxy's most lovable battle wagon. <laughs> um, I can't imagine what a lovable battle wagon is or how a battle wagon becomes lovable. <laughs> um, the two, two, it's an oxymoron as far as I can make out. The two phrases do not go together. Um, but you know, rabbit software again. Yeah, basically. Um, and the thing is, it's just worth mentioning here that all of the drawings, and I use that term lightly, the drawings <laughs> and graphics, uh, you know, these predate any real software to do this. So these are mostly hand drawn by what looks like eight year olds on the whole. <laughs> So there's not a no. The, 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 honestly, these look like the kind of things that sort of, you know, you draw when you were like 12, 13, and that might very well be the case. Some of these are probably drawn by maybe 15, 16 year olds. So credit to them for the effort. But no, there is a you know they, there is a rapid uh, increase in the quality of these adverts. And later, as we go into Zap and the adverts that are in the Zap, when we do some more of the crap adverts from there, there's actually some very clever adverts that come in much later down the line. So they do get better at this stuff. Mm. But um, 
in these early days, um, it's hard to pick out the good games from all of these really weird ones, especially the ones that borrow from other things. There's a lot of borrowing. So from ANF software, mm. you can have Cylon attack. Of course, that's you know, linking to battle, um, Battlestar Galactica and things like that. So there's quite a lot of theft, blatant theft, for want of a better description. Mm. But uh, I'm not going to rush yeah. off and play Transylvanian Tower now, that's for sure. No, I've not got a hankering for another 3D maze game. No, and that's the crapverts for this particular podcast. It is, yes. And we're just going to round off with the top 10. Then we've got the top 10 software. Uh, and and as we mentioned earlier, sort of thing, if we, if we include these, it's just to show you what was going on at the time and the games that we could have mentioned. But you'll see that there's a lot of sort of really not particularly very good um, arcade conversions um and some weird stuff so number one and we're just going to do the c64 stuff there's there's all kinds of uh, charts here but um so commodore 64 we've got number one the hobbit uh from melbourne house which is a text adventure from remember that and we've got radar rat race who knows <laughs> who knows um then we've got arcadia yeah. from imagine crazy kong kong game not Bimini. all not, not all donkey kong purple turtles sounds painful yeah, I'm going to put maybe a Frogger type thing. Um, Aquaplane, who knows? That sounds isometric. Uh, yeah, 3 Deep Space. I saw the advert for that, and it blatantly <laughs> is not what it's sold as. Well, that's what, what, why 3D? Because it's 3D. How it's meant to be like, it's, a three, it's, a three, it's an isometric <laughs> oh. game again. Oh, okay. I was thinking, what's what? Why? What, how do you measure it? What, 3 of what? Well, it's technically that's 3 3D. Three deep. Deep. Oh, right. Three Deep Space. Yeah. Okay. Intergalactic Llamas. Llamasoft. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, Super Dogfight. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the Lovable Caesar yeah, the Cat. Exactly. So there's nearly nothing yeah. in there yeah. yet that's becoming. And The Hobbit. It's interesting that Hobbit's number one, which is yeah. that kind of a graph, basic graphics tech based adventure. But there's not, you know, you can start to see. And even if you look at some of the other charts in there, the Spectrum chart, there's a lot of uh, Transamis in there, Scrambles in there. There's a lot of sort of. Uh, conversions and attack manic minor classic those classic games are, are just developing and it's an interesting time because we're going to see how rapidly these things start to accelerate and overtake with the commodore 64 as we go on so on that i think we'll, we'll wrap up for this inaugural uh episode hopefully you've enjoyed it we've talked a lot about various games we'll get into a more of a um obviously more of a structured as we progress sort of more structured approach as we progress because we will be looking at zap issue one um, uh, not looking at Zaps. We're not reviewing Zap. Let's mm-hmm. just make that. Yeah, the, very clear. Let's make that clear. Um, this is not a review of Zap magazine. We're using Zap as a reference point for the games that came out and they were reviewed in that issue. Right. Um, so it's not about what came out in May 1985. It's about what was reviewed in Zap. So that game could have come out before. It could have come out you know, whenever. Sort of thing. It could be a late release, or they could have looked back at it. We don't know. What we're doing is we're just using that as a reference point because finding games and release dates around that time is, is very, very difficult. Um, and this gives us a, a good structure to look at what was happening, what was going on. Um, and so our initial episode will be episode one, uh, Zap 64 issue one will be the reference point and we'll be looking at May 1985. Absolutely. So hopefully hopefully you can join us for that um, uh, and we'll carry on talking about C64 games and you may want to go play some of them. Are we going to add any to our, are we going to add any to a list? Yes. Are we going to do gonna, a list of we, games we'll we should do? We'll have a Zap to the Past um, list of games that you should play before you die and we'll get to choose some games. We won't do it for these particular ones. We've kind of mentioned those as we've gone along really and we'll put some early ones in the list maybe but when we actually do the official from Zap there will be ones from that issue of Zap which you can then go and play and download and play in you know, an emulator or something if you want to get really get the experience. 
Okay, yeah, so that's the plan. So uh, thanks for listening, um, and we'll hopefully see you in the next proper first episode. Thank you for listening to the Zap to the Past podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of Commodore 64 games, as well as the music, sights, sounds and news from around the 1980s, driven, of course, by the issue of Zap 64 magazine published at the time. We will be back next week with another podcast, so do please join us. Until then, please head over to zaptothepast.com to sign up to our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. You will also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Zap to the Past. The Zap to the Past podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Graham Raddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. All opinions expressed are those of the writers and while we indeed love Zap64 magazine, the Zap to the Past podcast is not affiliated with it in any way. Stay safe and see you next time.